I feel like they like working with me because I can relate to that struggle and navigation of, you know, money and wealth for the first time. Unlike most traditional financial advisors, like I personally wouldn't feel comfortable talking to a white man about my money. And I think most of my clients feel the same way. So I love working with them because it helps me feel connected to my community. And I've always felt that the more wealth in Cutie BIPOC BIPOC communities, the better, in my opinion. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to How to College First Gen. I'm your host, Alejandro, and today we're joined by Antoinette Dow. She is a first-generation Mexican-Vietnamese college graduate who consults in financial literacy, academia, and career preparation. In her day job, she is a senior risk associate at a global bank. I met Antoinette when I was a congressional intern at the U.S. House of Representatives back in 2019. Today, she joins us to talk about her undergraduate journey and how she built her side hustle from the ground up, which later turned into a small business known as Dow Academic Consulting. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Antoinette. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you. Before we begin, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Could you tell me a bit about your background and where'd you grow up? Yes, so I kind of grew up all over Houston and a bunch of different areas, so mostly Houston suburbs and inner city Houston. I moved around a lot because my family struggled to find stable housing. Um, we made it all the way up to Oregon for a little bit, and we did a public. We stayed in public housing there. Um, but eventually, my parents saved up enough money. They bought a house in the Houston suburbs right before the recession um, in a predominantly white area. So that's where I mostly lived, uh, back and forth. And then during my sophomore year of high school, I went to live with other family members on the southeast side of Houston, which was predominantly Latinx. So I got to experience a bunch of different neighborhoods growing up. I'd like to fast forward a little bit to you navigating your college application process. Many of our listeners are first-generation students and low-income, and navigating the college application process can be incredibly intimidating. I remember filling out my own financial aid forms my senior year and asking my parents questions they couldn't really answer about the process. Take me back to high school, Antoinette. What was your college application process and how did you navigate that? So great questions. Uh, High school me was a hot mess. Uh, For lack of better words, I was super stressed because I was working three jobs. I was an intern, um, part of like a high school program that allowed me to take an internship during the afternoon. I was also, after that internship, I sometimes did tutoring and I was also a babysitter across town. So I was taking like the bus back and forth and um, waking up at 5 a.m., taking like an hour, two hour bus to get back to high school and then just doing the process all over again. I wasn't living with my parents and I also knew that I couldn't live with them or any other family members after high school. So the uh, large contributor to my stress was that I was really terrified of being homeless and I'm broke after I graduated high school. And that's a large reason why I decided to apply to college. So I was like, well, I can't live with family, um, can't live with friends, but I can live in a dorm. And that's kind of where I'm going to hide out for the next four years of my life. So I was really open with my teachers about my situation and they helped me find scholarships. Uh, There was a college coordinator at my school who every time, you know, he found a scholarship that his students were eligible for, he just sent out a blast email and we could all apply. I also Googled scholarships every day during the downtime I had at my jobs and I kept an Excel tracker of deadlines and the materials I needed, you know, to meet those applications. 
Another big help was my older cousin. So he helped me write and edit my scholarship and admissions essays. And he was also the one that encouraged me to be open about my unique living situation and, you know, some of my uh, traumas so that I could qualify for more scholarships and financial aid. Because originally I, I didn't think it was relevant. I didn't think any admission officer, you know, scholarship person would want to hear it. Um, but it did add to my personality uh, in my applications. And it kind of explained why there were like gaps in my high school resume and, you know, some grades were the best and things like that. So it was stressful for all those factors and more, um, but I wasn't alone because I did have my teachers, I had some family, and I did have my friends, and they all pushed me to go to college, apply for financial aid, and, you know, do the process. And it sounds like throughout that process, while it was challenging itself, you had a lot of mentors and sponsors to guide you through it. Now you have your acceptance letters, and it's time to decide where you'll spend your next four years. Selecting a college is a difficult process for many first-generation students. Often we consider many factors in our decision, including cost, distance, area of study. You went to UT Austin and studied government. What stood out about UT that made you choose it among other universities you were admitted to? Yes, so I was actually influenced by other first-geners in my family. I first heard about UT Austin from my older cousin since he went there and he was like the first gender in my family. And uh, a couple of my other cousins went after him. So I had my eyes on UT as my dream school ever since I was a kid. And then as I got older, I Googled the school. I saw that, you know, it was one of the best in the state. Uh, they had an automatic admissions rule where anyone in the top 7% of their Texas graduating high school could be admitted. And so I kind of laser focused on that 7% rule. And I was like, that's what I that's what I need to do. That's where I need to be. If I can just make it to the top 7%, I can get into college and it's a done deal. So I didn't, I was naive. I didn't really factor cost or distance or area of study. I didn't even know that you had to pick a major. All that... I found out my senior year of high school when I got my acceptance letter and I got these notifications in my email where it was like, choose your dorm roommate, choose your major, you know, do this. And I was like, I thought I just like got accepted, went to college and that was it. So uh, that's when it hit me that I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, UT Austin was also the only university that accepted, accepted me out of all the out-of-state colleges I applied to. So it was actually really my only option for college. Uh, I didn't really apply to any other Texas schools because again, I was so laser focused on like getting accepted to UT. I knew that I qualified for that rule. So it was like UT or nothing. Um, and I wrongly assumed that they would give me the financial aid that I needed to go. I was like, why would anyone accept you and like not give you any money? Uh, so I was really confused when I got my acceptance letter and they're like, yeah, we estimate your cost to be about 80K. Good luck. And I was like, um, I don't have that. So that's when I started applying to scholarships and grants and loans like crazy. And um, I really relied on like my teachers to uh, walk me through like how to apply for FAFSA, how to write a scholarship essay and things like that. That was very similar to my thought process whenever I got my financial aid packages. My assumption was, oh, my parents make much less than what it costs to go to school here for one year. They're not going to expect me to pay all this money, which is something I also wrongly assumed. And then I find out that I have a bill of $15,000 I have to pay each year I'm enrolled. It's almost like every new school year I'm looking for scholarships. I hear my financial aid office say Gina Rodriguez's quote, have you looked into the Hispanic Scholarship Fund? 
There are a few places to look for help, Mama. Let's research. Yeah, and I don't know why it didn't hit me that like, oh, duh, like you have to pay for it. But I guess because I had heard, you know, from like teachers and other people, like, even my family, they're like, oh, you know, you're you're Mexican, you're Vietnamese, you're first gen, you're you're literally homeless. Like someone's gonna give you money. And it just, I didn't know how hard it was to actually find scholarships. And I didn't know there was like a whole process behind it. And you, you know, you're finding with other first geners for the same pot of money. It's, it's really competitive. So that was, that was really all new to me until I got my application letter. And I think that really speaks to a lot of the fear immigrant communities have about money. You know this because you not only have experienced it, but you also talk with individuals on a daily basis about money in your clientele. Could you talk about how you help clients overcome that anxiety they experience? Money is like a really touchy subject, especially depending on the culture. Um, I connect with my clients by just being really open about my personal financial struggles. So I'll just say, look, um, you know, whatever debt you have, I promise I've seen worse and actually I've experienced it. Like I've had credit card debt like every other person. Um, I have student loan debt like a lot of us. I also know what it's like to go negative in my checking accounts or like... Um, you have to work multiple jobs just to pay, you know, the bare basics. So there's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed about. Like there's nothing wrong with not having money. And I think so many of us are ingrained with that idea that there is something wrong when you don't have money or you don't have your finances together. And so crossing that hurdle, um, you know, just being very open about my own personal struggle with finances, I think opens a conversation for other people to say, well, hey, I've experienced that too. If we're all in the same boat, there can't be like there can't be something wrong with all of us, right? There must be something else at work here. So that's how I navigate those conversations. Now, regardless of your financial aid package, college is going to be expensive. You have to worry about paying your rent, you have to worry about feeding yourself and buying other essentials to survive those four years. I remember there was at one point in my experience where I had three different jobs just to pay for my necessities. I rolled burritos at Freebirds on nights and weekends, and I had two other internships. Could you talk about the different jobs you had throughout your experience? Yeah, that's um, wild because I totally relate. I also had three jobs and thought that I was, that was normal. So I, my freshman year, I mean, I've worked since high school, uh, right? So my freshman year of college, when people were telling me, oh, like you should just enjoy your college experience, don't work your freshman year, I was like, you don't know what it's like. Like, I, I literally can't do that. I've only, I've worked since I was 15. I've like, I've, I need to work to pay my own bills. And like, I don't want to take out student loans. That scares me. So I was stubborn. And my freshman year, I worked as a legal assistant. I, I wrote letters for attorneys. And um, it was really time consuming. The job was kind of far from campus. So it definitely affected like my GPA and um, my first semester. And I, I got like a 2.0 that first semester and that disqualified me for some of the scholarships I had because they, you know, scholarships have their own GPA requirements. So that's when I realized I, I tried to find work-life balance with school, but it was really tough. So in addition to working as a legal assistant, I was also a restaurant hostess during the summer. Um, I worked as a tutor for wealthy families. And at one point I was even cleaning houses, trying to make rent. And that was a time when my younger brother had moved in with me and I was trying to afford living expenses for us both while also being a full-time student. And the cleaning houses job was the one that really humbled me because my mom was a janitor at one point when I was a kid. And I remember her telling me, you know, dropping me off at school, like, don't tell anyone about my job because, you know, she was embarrassed and she was like, well, I don't want anyone to think like wrong of you because your mom's a janitor. 
And I was frustrated with myself that my mom had worked so hard to keep me from doing the same physical labor that she did. And yet here I was, you know, in college, working the same job just to afford the cost of living. And it felt like I was repeating the cycle of poverty and I was really frustrated with myself and I, I really hated myself for it. I was like, this shouldn't be happening. Like, why am I in college struggling? Um, and I think that kind of relates to a lot of us where we still have to work. We still have to like find a way to survive and meet our basic living expenses in college because we don't have the financial support that others do. So um, it's just, I mean, it's not our fault. At the time, I felt like it was my fault. I was doing something wrong. I was doing college wrong. But as I'm older, I realized that, no, that was just actually something I had to do, unfortunately. I really appreciate that you touch on the reality of survival throughout college, because I think for me, going to school, especially in a private university, the biggest culture shock wasn't the people who went to school or Austin itself, but rather the level of wealth that was on campus. I had classmates who were princes from foreign countries and students whose parents were doctors, lawyers, and CEOs. I remember my first semester, the person who lived in the dorm next to me asked me very seriously, wait, Alejandro, like, you're not rich? Like, what is that even supposed to mean? But I'm not sure if you shared a similar experience going to UT. Oh, man. Um... I never had anyone ask me if I was rich, but I did have people like act surprised when I would kind of talk about like, oh, I, I work. And they're like, you work? And I was like, yeah, don't you? Like th those kind of conversation. I do remember my freshman year, I was failing my calculus class because I kept, I didn't have the time to study. And I was honestly, I was, I didn't realize how far behind I was. Um, and then I was like leaving a tutoring session with this guy that was in one of my study groups. And he was, and I was like trying to explain to him how frustrated I felt. I was like, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm studying, I'm going to all these tutoring sessions and like, it's still not clicking. Like what's not clicking, Steven? <laughs> it's not clicking in my head. And he was like, wait, didn't you take calculus in high school? And I was like, no, they didn't offer that at my high school. And he was like, oh, he's, and he just kind of said it matter of factly. He was like, oh, well, that's why you're failing. He was like, all of us have taken it. Like, he was like, all of us took AP Calc. He's like, I took AP Calc. He's like, everyone in our study group took AP Calc. And I was like, well, this is the... And I didn't know. I was like, I didn't even know they offered calculus in high school. Like, I thought, you know, my high school didn't offer that. Um, so that's when I realized that you know, everyone was kind of on a different playing field. And then, you know, when kids, like, students would casually say something about, like, oh, my mom won't send me money for groceries. Or, like, oh, I'm so broke this week because, like, I have a budget. And I was like, well, I'm broke this week because my paycheck doesn't cover what I needed to cover. So <laughs> we, we are not the same. Um, and that also, like... Another reason why I struggled to make friends my first two years at UT, because I was surrounded by all these people in my classes. And every time I felt a comment like that, it made me feel more and more like I was just in the wrong place. And I was like, these are not my people. I just like, I just don't feel welcome on campus. Um, so it wasn't until like my junior, senior year that I, I intentionally tried to seek out other first gen you know, POC people where I could relate. And I finally felt like, okay, there's a place on campus for me. Throughout your undergraduate journey, you decided to start your small business. What motivated you to start it? And what kind of services did you provide early on? Yeah, so at first I didn't really call it a business. It was kind of me just um, going around sharing resources with whoever would take them. So when I was tutoring for rich families, I realized that their success was largely driven by how many resources they could afford. And I was paid at the time to help my students study, do their homework, apply to college, you know, be successful. 
And one of my like aha moments was when I was in my student's mansion for the first time. And I saw this picture that was on the wall and it looked like one of those like, oh, my first baptismal pictures. But instead of that, it was like my first stock and it was Amazon and it was like Amazon stock back in like the early 2000s. And that's when I realized how early of a head start these kids have. Like he didn't go and buy that stock himself. He was probably like three at the time. You know, it was his parents. Like his parents had that knowledge already. They were building a foundation for him. And I, I just realized that that was a head start that I could have never had because my parents didn't have that knowledge. And it's not their fault. It's just, you know, because of the resources they had. And, you know, we can go back generations. So I, I really loved tutoring. I loved the actual, like, connecting with students, helping them figure out, like, you know, what's the next step after high school. Um, but I didn't want to tutor for wealthy families forever. I wanted to have that same connection with students and people from backgrounds like mine who didn't have their family wealth or connections or the resources to fall back on. So I started sharing information with my family and friends. I would help them, you know, review cover letters, apply to internships and jobs. I would help my friends um, sit down with them in coffee shops and like create their budgets for their financial aid awards and student loans. And I didn't really start calling myself a business until I moved to DC and I met other struggling first geners and, you know, QE BIPOC professionals like me. And we were all trying to figure out how to survive financially, you know, pay DC rent on an intern salary and jumpstart our careers and, you know, be successful, whatever that means. So I started advertising my budgeting services on Instagram and offering free consultations. And then that just naturally built up to the client list I have today. And I originally started out with just like a PowerPoint slide deck that I would click through and kind of walk clients through. And I just had a bunch of information on like, this is how you save, this is how you invest, this is how you pay off debt. Uh, but I transitioned to a more personalized approach after meeting with multiple clients and they all had unique, different financial situations. Um, some of my clients had DACA, others didn't. Um, some had student loans, others didn't. And so I realized that I really couldn't use a one size fits all approach. I had to look at the full picture, financial picture of my client, and then address different things and um, work with them to meet their financial goals that way. And it sounds like after all that time, you took a step back and you thought about all the people who are experiencing similar challenges you went through. For four years, you worked with clients who already had a leg up. And then you think about the people who don't have this knowledge and information. That led you to found Dow Academic Consulting to help students and professionals budget and prepare for academic and career success. Could you talk about the clientele you serve now? What kind of clients do you work with and how many clients have you worked with so far? Yes, so so far I've worked with over 100 clients, um, but I meet with a set amount, uh, about 15 to 25 clients per month. And their incomes range from you know 40,000 a year all the way to 200,000 per year. And all of them identify as queer, trans, black, or POC. And most of them are the first in their families to graduate college and the first in their families to have discretionary income where they don't feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck. They have a little bit more and they're like, okay, what do I do with this little bit more? And I, I feel like they like working with me because I can relate to that struggle and navigation of you know, money and wealth for the first time. Unlike most traditional financial advisors, like I personally wouldn't feel comfortable talking to a white man about my money. And I think most of my clients feel the same way. So I love working with them because it helps me feel connected to my community. And I've always felt that the more wealth in cutie BIPOC communities, the better, in my opinion. What has been the most fulfilling part about running your small business? What makes you think at the end of the day when you're late on a client call, one you're about to hop on 30 minutes after this interview, keep going? 
Yes. So uh, just their success really motivates me. Six of my clients have become first-time home buyers over the past two years in a highly competitive market. Um, some have achieved other major milestones, like investing for the first time in, in an individual brokerage or a retirement account, or they've successfully landed a new job and they've negotiated a higher salary. And you know, things like that, it brings me joy every time someone from our community achieves a major financial milestone and they don't have to stress about money or their financial future. They feel secure for the first time in their lives. And our families, our ancestors, they worked so hard to give us what they perceived as a better life. And so when we feel like we finally achieved that life, it's so fulfilling. And it's, it's incredible to be part of that journey with others. And it's truly been a privilege to see everything you've accomplished in your career path, but also in your side hustle as well. I can say that you are definitely your ancestors' wildest dreams. What advice would you give to first-generation students who are interested in starting their side hustle? Yes. Yeah, so and that's a great question. And it may sound obvious or even a little cheesy, but my true advice and the advice has worked for me is to believe in yourself, uh, grow from feedback, post on social media, and ask for help when you need it. And uh, I can back that up with my own experience. So when I first started calling myself to academic consulting, uh, I was actually really subconscious about looking silly. And I was nervous to advertise my services on social media because I felt like, well, who am I, right, to help someone else budget, save, and invest their money? What certifications or skills do I have? Am I qualified enough to be giving other people advice? You know, I barely have my life together. How, like, how are people going to feel comfortable to me talking about some really touchy subjects and subjects that are really personal to them? So I really doubted myself and my abilities in the beginning. And what helped me grow and overcome that fear of failure and inadequacy was feedback from my clients. So friends of friends and random people started sliding into my DMs on Instagram, asking for free consultations uh, when I started advertising them on my stories and my feed. And after those initial consultations, they were excited about scheduling more, which is how I worked with some of the same clients for over two years now. And they gave me feedback about how helpful it was to finally be able to talk to someone about their personal finances and not feel embarrassed or ashamed or disconnected. And I feel like all of us navigating money for the first time feel this immense pressure to succeed without failure and to do it all by ourselves. But we don't have to do everything alone. That's like this first gen perpetuated myth where like I have to you know, do it all alone, be the first and you know, do it with be flawless and it's like okay to not be flawless and get it right the first time. And that's why I encourage um, to reach out to people we trust, ask for feedback, ask for help when we need it, rely on our community so that we feel empowered to pursue our passions. And, you know, when we see a need in our community to fill it in the best way that we think is right. Antoinette, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability, and I'm sure our audience will have a bunch of takeaways from our conversation. Um, just one last thing before you leave, um, how can our audience connect with you? Yes, so I am on Instagram, I am on TikTok, and I'm accessible via email. So I go by Aim Money Moves on social media, and my email is dowacademicconsulting at gmail.com and it's the same for my website so if you just like google first name last name my website this should pop up and um, i offer free initial consultations you know it's important for me to have these conversations in our community for free uh and and i just you know post content every day or so so that's how y'all can keep updated 
Thank you so much again for joining us. Okay, thank you so much, Alejandro. It was a pleasure.